Irish Nation. Notre Dame picks up one of the biggest program victories in really the last 20 or 30 years with a 35-14 dismantling of the number four ranked Clemson Tigers at Notre Dame Stadium. And I was at this game. And once again, as tradition has it on this show, any show we record post-game, I've of course lost my voice. So apologies in advance for the audio issues. Really excited to welcome Danny to the show as a guest co-host. Mike is flying back from his honeymoon uh, this week, and so we'll get him back into the regular cadence again starting next week. But welcome to the show, Danny, alumni from the class of 2013, who I know by way of uh, our wives are best friends from St. Mary's. And so that's that's how Danny and I got uh, roped into becoming here really good friends over the last few years and a big Notre Dame football fan and excited to have him on the show. Uh, great to be on the show. I'm excited to be be part of Irish Nation for the first time. It's a long time listener, first time <laughs> joining, so it's great to be here. And sitting with Brad, I, uh, I wanted to follow suit and decided to also give up my voice cheering. So that was a uh, that is a fun time, but that is that's right now struggle to talk. So apologies in advance. But that 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 vibe in the stadium yesterday was as. As good of a game that I remember being at, it was electric from kickoff to the block punts to the end of the game, storming the field. It was as fun of a game as I can remember being at, and and it was worth the hype and the excitement that that the whole day built up for. A little a little wind here and there, but it was great. Yeah, and you know I think Notre Dame Stadium definitely gets uh, sometimes a reputation of not being the most intimidating environment or fans maybe not being as loud as some other stadiums. And, and certainly, you know, going to Athens or, or the Horseshoe, you know, there are louder environments than Notre Dame. But I was really impressed with the fan base for this one. The place was packed, and I couldn't see a section the entire game that was really standing down at, at any point during the game. So about as juiced of a prime time um, game at Notre Dame that, that I've been a part of. And also, really pumped for me personally, I have sat in Section 19 uh, every single game that, that I go back as an alumni and have yet to lose a game sitting in that section, putting that streak on the line. It was a big uh, bring-your-own-guts kind, kind of game to quote Dabo Swinney. And um, Notre Dame comes away with just a huge victory, an incredibly fun day with, with friends and, and tailgating and, and the whole show. Um, Notre Dame's got to get you tickets to have those seats. Every game, they gotta, they gotta start paying money. Yeah, and one other thing that I thought was awesome was after Georgia and then Cincinnati last year, and I know everyone talks about Nebraska in 2000 that road teams always show up big in the stadium, and especially when you have a bright color that pops like red or orange like Clemson, and there's a lot of fear going in that they were going to overwhelm Notre Dame fans, and I thought Notre Dame showed out really well, which is weird to say for a home game, but the fan base really showed up for a, what was five and three at the time. And still the fans brought it. I thought that was, that was great to finally see the fans get behind a team and, and show faith in Marcus Freeman and this team going forward. There's there's support there and the fan base showed it today and, or yesterday. And it was an awesome, awesome time. Absolutely. So today's show, we're going to spend most of it recapping this Clemson game. We'll briefly look ahead for next week's matchup against the Navy midshipmen. And then to close out the show, we pre-recorded an interview with Mick Asaf, the founder and CEO of Yoke, which is a uh, NIL platform for college football 
student athletes through through player collectives, a Notre Dame alumni. Uh, we had his younger brother Sam on the show last year. Sam's a walk on on the team currently. Mick was a walk on who graduated back in 2019. It was actually Ian Book's roommate. So really excited to have that segment to close out today's show. But without further ado, let's dive into the Clemson game. Not every day do you get the opportunity to play in this place, um, jam packed with those fans and um, have an opportunity to be the top five team in the country. Uh, it's really special and, and I'm so proud of our guys and uh, the way they continue to trust us coaches. Um, they they do exactly what you ask them to do. That's what makes them so special is that they're willing to do whatever you tell them to do to help us have success. And uh, it's an honor to coach them. As mentioned in the opener, Notre Dame comes away from this one 35-14. And really, the game wasn't even as close as the score indicates with Clemson picking up a couple garbage time touchdowns in the fourth quarter when the game was you know all but statistically over and I totally got this prediction wrong Uh, I really thought Notre Dame was going to struggle in this game especially with a one-dimensional offense I just wasn't expecting um really a run only approach to be effective against Clemson's defensive line in front seven that's one of the best in the nation but you know, Danny, this was about as cover to cover as dominant as you could get. The post game win expectancy here was 100%. So, no doubt about it, Notre Dame played a top five team and was absolutely the better team on the field. What, what were your overall reactions to the game? I I was watching the game kind of in disbelief the whole time that they were opening up holes, and it seemed like it was almost flukish at first. That all right, this is eventually Clemson's going to respond and start filling the gaps and shutting down the run game. And it just never happened. And first quarter success turned into second quarter belief and third and fourth quarter. I was almost dumbfounded by how easy it was to run the ball against Clemson, a a top 10 run defense that, that couldn't stop the ball at all. It was, it was awesome to watch. It was a true butt kicking the whole time. And, and it's just fun to see a team just impose their will. I remember, Turning to at one point early on, it just says lean on lean on that Clemson defensive line, and they did. They they controlled the game. Audrey Casme, Logan Diggs, Chris Tyree, just they they controlled the game from start to finish. Even even if they weren't getting red red zone opportunities, they they controlled the ball. I'm shocked the time of possession was as close as it was because it was Notre Dame's Notre Dame's day. From every time they touched the ball, they were in control. Yeah, you know, this show, myself especially, has been pretty critical of Tom Reese throughout this rocky five and three roller coaster, um, or really now six and three with with this win. And this was a game unlike Syracuse, where, you know, after the Syracuse game, we said, look, the, the run game put up a bunch of yards and was really good, but wasn't necessarily as dominant as 250 yards might suggest in this game. Notre Dame got that same 250 yards rushing, but was even more dominant, 5.6 yards per carry. There was an absurd line yard stat of 4.2 line yards. Again, line yards is trying to measure kind of how much of the running game can you attribute to the offensive lines push. I can't remember a Notre Dame game with line yards ever above four. Um, it's just a really hard statistic to get above, you know, really anything in the high threes is considered ridiculously good. I think our best line yards per game coming into this one is 3.8. So a meaningful step better 
But instead of it being against UNLV, it was against Clemson. And unlike the Syracuse game where in the third and fourth quarter it was still a grind, in this one, Danny, I mean, in the third and fourth quarter, it was not a grind. Like, I'm not saying Danny and I could have went out there and got 100 yards rushing, but those holes were big enough. Danny and I could have went and got three yards of carry. He just fell forward in, the, in these massive holes. Um, you know, yards per carry by quarter was three and a half in the first quarter, 6.3 in the second, 6.3 in the third, 5.6 in the fourth. So, I mean, we were getting six, seven, eight, ten yard chunky runs for a big part of this game. And just to double click on what we mean by that, last week we highlighted a touchdown drive by Notre Dame where they scored a touchdown, but they got there with two yard run, three yard run, four yard run, Mike Mayer pass, two yard run, three yard, like weren't really blowing them off the ball. Here in this game, you know, Clemson was mounting what was probably the only real momentum they had all game when they cut it to 28 to seven, um, or sorry, was it 21 to 28 to seven? And Notre Dame came right back and answered. And the drive chart started with a 16-yard run, 8-yard run, 11-yard run, 4-yard run, 1-yard run, 5-yard run. That, that, that's how we started that drive. It ended with the play-action pass to Mike Mayer. And that's chunky yardage there. That's not like methodically grinding out first downs. That's going out and getting 16, 8, 11 yards. That's what wasn't there against Syracuse. That's what I was not expecting to see. And that drive, I thought, was the epitome of what you're saying, Danny, of this, you know, lean on the defensive line and just run them over. Um, absolutely fun to watch. Statistically, was whatsoever not expecting to see that in this game. I think one other thing is you said the word grind. And when Notre Dame played Clemson in 2020, you opened the game with a 65-yard run to to Kyron Williams. And that's a huge chunk play. And Notre Dame didn't have that. This week, they they were a long run of 20 yards and they just found a way to get those 10 yard carries. And that is almost more demoralizing than one run that that gives you seven points. And then it's ball back to the defense. Notre Dame was able to control the game with just being able to grind out those six, seven, eight yard efficient runs and just truly wear down that Clemson defense over the course of 60 minutes. Yeah, you know, this is not an explosive offense. I think we've come to just expect that, and and you know that. So in this game, Notre Dame had just one play over 20 yards. Um, the average college football game, each team has about five. So like get, getting five 20-plus yard plays per game is average. We had just one, but we had 17 plays of 10 yards or more. So, you know, it wasn't the methodical three, four, five yards, and it wasn't the home runs. It was just continuing to be right down the middle and like bend them over um and you know give tom reese credit this game while it was very one-dimensional with running i really liked the play calling i thought it was really creative i thought he was mixing it up um on the 46 runs only 11 were up the middle so 35 were going to the guards or further outside on the perimeter um a lot of different formations Two running backs went over 100 yards. There's really good balance even within the running game. And then in the limited passing game that there was, we've been begging on this show for more play action, and we got it in this game. Drew Pine throws play action coming into this game about 28% of the time. His passes are play action. In this game, that number bumped up to 40%, and he delivered. It's the same theme we've been seeing all year. On non-play action, Pine completed 
just 45% of his passes for 2.5 yards per attempt. In this game, on those play-action throws, 67% completion rate for 9.5 yards per attempt, including the big touchdown to Mike Mayer that really was the icing on the cake in this game. So I thought the creativity within the run game, mixing up different player personnel, getting balls, getting the ball into the playmaker's hands on the perimeter. Um, overall, just a great game for Tom Reese. And I'll be the first to admit it when I'm wrong. I was dead wrong on this one. And he got that unit to play to the tune of a success rate of 51%. Um, you, know, you know, success rate, you want to be in the high 40s. I think that was our second highest success rate on the year. Um, so we were just churning out first downs after first downs after first downs. And um, Tom Reese, I think, had one of, if not his, best game ever as, as the punt caller. Yeah, I, I think that touchdown to Mayer really, that's your perfect example of being creative and not cute. He knew what was working for him, and he was handing the ball off every single play. And the one the one play action pass that they dropped back on, he got Mayer uncovered, essentially uncovered in the end zone. And it was perfectly dialed up, perfectly set up. He, he knew that at one point they were going to have just a, a shot to the end zone, and they used it well. They The play calling to set it up for that point was – it was it, that was game that yeah, you could you could get your car started up and get ready to go because once once Drew Pine pulled that ball to pass you knew the game was over because Mayor was wide open for that touchdown. Yeah, and the the last shout out. Well, first off, a Mayor with that touchdown also now sets the Notre Dame tight end record for catches, yards, and touchdowns. So he is officially the greatest tight end in Notre Dame's history. If that wasn't already obvious, this one puts another big record to his name. I think, you know, only trails Mike Floyd for all-time touchdown catch leader, regardless of position. So just another great day for 87. Um, you know, the other thing that I thought stood out in this game that we've alluded to was how dominant the offensive line was. I and mean, we kind of mentioned that through some of these run game stats, but they absolutely controlled this game. Pine was well-protected all night. Um, he only had six pressures or hurries or only one of those resulted in a sack. So by and large, even in passing situations, um, pretty clean pocket. We mentioned the 4.2 line yards is just an absurd number. And the other big thing, I mean, Havoc is a huge part of Clemson's defense, of getting after quarterbacks, of getting tackles for loss in the backfield. Only a 9% Havoc rate for Clemson in this game. Defenses want that to be in the high teens so, you know, really kind of one in five plays is what a defense is going for to disrupt the offense with a Havoc play. Here, it was really only one in ten plays. So that offensive lining, both the pass and run block, um, just a dominant night for that unit. And we were talking about this before recording. I was pretty surprised we didn't see that in the pro football focus grades, that they were okay. Um, you know, pretty strong grades for Alton Fisher around a 70 Logan Patterson around a 65, and then Z Corral graded out poorly in the 50s. I, I was sitting there in the 11th row, and I saw an offensive line that was the best unit on the field and would have expected them to grade out a lot better. If, if you were to guess between the Notre Dame offensive line and the Clemson defensive line, which one's going to have more day one, day two NFL draft picks watching the game, you would put your money on Notre Dame. Now, scouts will probably tell you that Clemson has multiple first-round picks on that defensive line. But for Notre Dame to shut it down 
as handily as they did and make it look effortless almost. It was it was awesome to watch. These the grades they might not reflect, but these were I mean, Joe Alt's a future top ten draft pick. Blake Fisher's a future first round draft pick. I mean Jared Patterson day two draft pick. These are all future pros, but they they held more than held their own against Brian Brzee, who's a first round draft pick. It's a bunch of guys who are future NFL players and and you saw with the Notre Dame offensive line today or yesterday. Flip into the other side of the ball. Um, arguably also the best game that this defense has played all year. And this one, we did get the prediction right. We, we did accurately kind of assess how Notre Dame was going to match up in this game. And we've talked about it a lot on this year. This year, we think the Notre Dame's defense is one of the best units in the country, but with a couple of just Achilles heel issues, namely giving up havoc plays and then in the red zone. Um, not getting stops in the red zone and giving up touchdowns instead of, you know, field goals or turnovers. And finally, they put that game, you know, just a full game together. And really the only points they gave up was after Notre Dame had a 28 nothing lead in the fourth quarter, which in all the advanced metrics we look at count as garbage time, and so you kind of ignore it. It would have been great to go and get a shutout. But, um, I mean, regardless of that, you know, Clemson's success rate was just 28% in this game. Um, you know, this defense has had some great performances th- this year. Only UNLV had a lower success rate. Um, so just a wildly great game where Clemson could get nothing going on on their offensive side of the ball. And that was supplemented with a havoc rate of 25%. So we talked about Clemson's defense only generated havoc plays on 9% of the plays. Notre Dame was getting a disruptive tackle for loss or sack or deflection on one in four plays. Um, that was actually higher than what I was expecting, even just watching the game live. It was, of course, kept off with a huge day for Ben Morrison with two interceptions, a block punt, so some very, you know, memorable, um, you know, plays within that. But even more than just those big highlights, all day we were just living in Clemson's backfield. And um, just really didn't let them get going. I, I know this podcast is very big into analytics and stats, but one thing that you could see was body language. And DJU was he was shook out there. I think I, I saw or read someone say he was seeing ghosts, and that's what it was. Everything he was throwing was a checkdown or double coverage or or a bad miss. He didn't know where to put the ball, and that was because of the havoc Notre Dame was creating and the coverage that they had on the receivers. Nerding took any Clemson wide receiver out of the game. It was it was just a dominating performance, and DJU did not look like the quarterback that he was last time that he came to Notre Dame. He was he was, he was scared, and that's a testament to the Notre Dame defensive line for just controlling the game from start to end there. Yeah, and, you know, one, there weren't chunk plays in this game. Um, the explosiveness was really kept in check um, all day. I was trying to pull it up. I think they had a play of 21 yards and a play of 22 yards. So, again, if, you know, Chunky plays over 20 yards a game, averages five. We limited Clemson to just two in this game, and they were only 21 or 22. They weren't big home run hitters. And then on top of that, we came up with red zone stops. We, we made a huge fourth down stand. I think that was actually outside the red zone, but it was when they were on kind of – Cuspy field goal range 
um, in the first half, made a big stop around the 40. And then, of course, we had the huge red zone interception, those return 96 yards for a touchdown. So, you know, two areas that Notre Dame maybe had to clean up in this game. Um, they really did. And, and by the way, the efficiency ratings really like what they're seeing from Notre Dame. We've, we've jumped from 46 in SP Plus's rankings two weeks ago, now all the way up to 26 here after these Syracuse and Clemson games. And that's really driven by our defense now that's jumped all the way up to 16. So we were talking about play in, play out. This is a really efficient defense, but they just aren't sharp at closing out performances. And, you know, one of the things a few weeks ago, Pete Sampson at the Athletic had had a point that this team is what they are. Like at this point in the season, this team is what it is. We kind of disagreed with that, and we're starting to see it now. Like the defense that we saw against Marshall, Cal, and Stanford was really, really good, but you could tell it was on the cusp of something even better. These last two weeks, we've we've gotten that, and, you know, it's worth calling out here I think how the situational football really played together. Obviously, the block punt led to a touchdown. The pick six led to a touchdown. Um, the fourth down stop, um, or no, sorry, the other interception. Yeah, the first Morrison interception that set him up at the, I think, the 11-yard line. Yeah. yard line. It was essentially defense, defensive special teams created three touchdowns in this game with that. Yeah, so, I mean, for, you know, the, maybe the one knock on this game is that the offense – really only had two scoring jobs that weren't touchdowns handed to them. But what I thought was really great on the other side, right? So clearly the defense set up the offense and, you know, even just removed the offense, just put points on the board. Um, but the other side of that is that the off- the offense only had one three and out in this game. So we were moving the ball with at least one or two first downs. We were flipping field position. We were giving our defense a breather. And one of the things that, you know, kind of shows that in the data was the average starting field position for Clemson. The average in this game was inside their own 20. Um, Notre Dame's was all the way out past the 35. I thought that was great complimentary football between the offense and the defense, where even if Reese was methodical and we were going to run it and that was, you know, going to not maybe be the most explosive way to go put up a bunch of points, I thought it was a great way to play with the lead. And I thought it was a great way to just keep flipping the field, winning field position, and breaking down Clemson. One thing that when you're talking about growth of this defense, I think one thing you can kind of look at with the growth is early on when we were playing UN or not UNLV, when we were playing Cal and we were playing Marshall, one thing that was burning us was a quarterback run. You had third and seven, third and 14, and the quarterback would break a runoff. And just to be sound correct in that uh, DJU had what two runs? I don't know. He had one long run really. And that was it. Yeah. He, he had the 22 yard run for them. And other than that, um, I think the rest of his rushing for getting the sacks was like less than 15 yards. Yeah, so, just in a sound correct defense, that's, that's where you see this growth that they're able to jump up so much in efficiency is there. They were good on first, second down, early in the year, and it was that third down that they kept getting burnt on. And now to see that they are sound correct and they are making that play on third down, that changes the whole look of the, the team. And I maybe it's crazy to think, but if they're, sound, if they're correct on third down against Marshall, we're looking at a 10-1 football team right now, and, and this team is in the playoff hunt. But the, sometimes college kids have to grow, and you saw that here, that they are, they're learning to play that running quarterback a lot better and 
I mean, Caleb Williams is going to be tough against USC, but you might not have a harder guy to tackle than DJU was coming into this game. For sure. I love talking about tackling. Fans have a really um, disproportionate memory of missed tackles than they do of good tackling. Notre Dame is second in the country with a missed tackle rate of just 8%. In this game, it was 9%. So only five missed tackles in this game, which is a really low number. Um, that's about as good as it gets in the country. And that's trying to bring down a guy like DJU, who is about as big and physical of a quarterback as you're going to go up against. And Will Shipley, who, I mean, is arguably, he's for sure all ACC. He, he might be All-American or certainly later on in his career. He's projected that way. And Chip was pretty efficient in this game. He rushed for over five yards to carry, but he was not doing the typical Will Shipley show of just losing defenders in their, you know, in their shoes and, and breaking tackles and getting big plays. So tackling in this game um, is something else to call out for this defense. Danny, I'm curious. I think obviously Marcus Freeman gets an A-plus grade, at least for this game. Um, what are your overall thoughts on now where Freeman is Six and three, rocky roller coaster start, but gets this huge, huge, huge win that I don't think a lot of people saw coming, myself included. Where are you at now on just kind of evaluating Marcus Freeman? Help me in on that camp that I I didn't see this coming at all. I was I was hoping that Notre Dame would keep it close and wouldn't wouldn't be run over in this game. But for this game to come out and they dominate on both sides of the line and a team that Marcus Freeman says time in and time out. It's an offensive-defensive-driven program. There's now proof of concept, and he'll be able to go to recruits. He'll be able to go into the offseason and point to this game and say, this is the message that I want. This is the message I am willing to deliver, and it will be a rallying cry. You'll be able to point to this game as the testament to what he wants to build as a program, and it's it's going to make a lot of believers out of the fan base. Not that he lost a lot of people early on. I mean, he's a first-time head coach. You knew there were going to be growing pains, but Brian Kelly didn't have it till season two when he beat Utah, or was that season one? Whenever it was, Utah was not nearly as big of a win, but people started to see an uh, example of what they could build, and this is ten times that win was. I, I think that Marcus Freeman's got bought himself a lot of goodwill and, and hype from just – a, a mastercraft of a game plan and execution. And how many times does Marcus Freeman harp on execution, but they executed to perfection this week and compliments to him for getting that team ready to play. Yeah. The, the biggest knock on Brian Kelly was not only not winning some of these biggest games, but not being competitive in so many of them being blown out by Bama and Miami on the road and, Michigan in the rainstorm and, and Ian Books, I think first or second year as a starter. And, you know, the only top five win we had in the Kelly era was this Clemson team um, two years ago during COVID in an empty stadium when at the last minute um, Trevor Lawrence, their All-American quarterback, went down and DJU really shined in that game, played really, really well. But that was kind of a you know, half-baked Clemson team in, in that game. And it still took Notre Dame two overtimes to win. It would certainly be difficult to look at that Clemson game in 2020 and conclude that Notre Dame was by far the better team. 
I thought they were very equal teams. But then when we came back to rematch them in the ACC when Clemson was at full strength, we got blown out. Here, there was no doubt about it who the better team was on this field. That is a performance that we never got under, not even Brad Kelly, but under really anyone all the way back to like the 93 season. Like I'm trying to think of a time when Notre Dame dismantled a top five team. And I think I might've still still been wearing diapers. Um, So look, this show, we've been harsh, I think, especially on Reese. Um, But I think this game clearly takes Tom Reese off the hot seat in a major, major way and gives, as you said, so much confidence back into this program for Freeman. The other thing, you know, we've, we try not to nitpick on coaching interviews, like like what they say in, in press conferences, because so much can be taken out of context and so much is kind of set off the cuff. And you can sometimes get weird questions from reporters. This was about as fun of a post-game interview that I've ever listened to. Like he was genuinely just pure joy. Um, in his opening statement, he talked about how he changed up his post-game routine partially because of everyone storming the field um and he was like i just wanted to stay out there forever and just hang out with the kids that weren't on the football team but then when i got back in the first thing i did was pulled all the coaches into the coaches locker room and i hugged each one of them individually um that's cool that's awesome like that's not stuff you're getting from saban or urban meyer or brian kelly like that genuine component to Marcus Freeman as a person, I think makes it even more fun as a fan. Um, you know, another one, he got asked a question about how big of a game is this for Benjamin, Benjamin Morse and who had the two big interceptions, the, the one for pick six. And the only thing Freeman talked about was getting to meet his parents. His dad was a former player in the NFL who's now um, a minister and how that spirituality really is part of Ben Morrison. So he was asked the question about like, how is this career defining game going to impact Ben Morrison? And he's talking about his family. Um, that approach to this team in this program, um, when it's not working, I think it's easy to say are those distractions. When it is working, I think it's a very cool, authentic program that's just fun to cheer for. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's an accident that. Benjamin Morrison's coming out has been in lockstep with the rise of the defense to get a true star cornerback, which maybe it's a little early to put him in that category, but he's showing the makings of being a Julian Love type cornerback there. That's that's going to cause your defense to to rise and freshmen take time to develop, but he is he is that that kind of player. I mean, they were head-to-head with Alabama to get him. And if there's one thing Nick Saban knows, it's defensive backs. And to steal one from Bama, that's that's what's going to turn this defense into a world-beating Georgia-level defense is to get those kind of secondary players. It's it's what you need. And he, he's he's got the makings of being that shutdown corner that will be able to take out a number one receiver. And then you can put him on an island and let a whole team – do their other, everyone else can do their job and he can take out your number one star. And it's great to see because we don't often have that kind of skill talent out wide. And one other thing about coaches press conferences, as fun as the Marcus Freeman one is to watch the, uh, Dabo Sweeney is kind of an equally fun one to watch when he just gets up there and he says, we got our butts kicked to, to have a coach just 
own up and say we got dominated, that's a that's a nice press conference to watch as the winning team. Absolutely. I, I joked in the you know intro, but I think it was the twenty fifteen game in Hurricane um, Joaquin, which actually my wife Ann was at that game despite the hurricane weather conditions. And they, they walked away on the Deshaun Kaiser failed two point um, conversion attempt that, that would have been a huge upset for Notre Dame. Clemson went on to make the college football playoff that year. And in, in the post game, Dabo said it was a bring your own guts kind of game. Like every player to bring their own guts to that game. Um, the Clemson Tigers did not bring their own guts to this game. And the Notre Dame uh, football team did. So it was, it was really nice to get redemption on that, which by the way, that was really great coach. Um, I thought that was a really class act way to give us a lot of credit. I thought his bring your own guts quote was awesome when he said it. I was like, dang it. I kind of wish my coach had something like that. And so, um, yeah, to, to hear Dabo kind of admit this was one of the worst beatings he's had as a coach. Um, pretty, pretty good feeling, spe- special night for this program. And we haven't even mentioned it yet. Rushing the field after the game. Um, I've now gotten to be a part of a couple of those, including that Utah game. You mentioned early on, but just getting out onto the stadium and being surrounded by thousands of Notre Dame fans and just pure bliss and joy. Um, what a cherry on top of the Sunday for just an incredible, incredible college football weekend. It was, it was great. It was, it was a cathartic moment after a, a season of multiple times the team was booed off the field at halftime because the offense couldn't do anything. And for the fans to be on the field with the players celebrating in a not a shock win like it was in Stanford in 2012 when you were shocked at the way the game ended, it was just everyone was just pure joy and it's a uh, it feels like a community there when you have everyone on the field getting excited together and to go back to one thing with the 2015 game, if, if we learned one thing, it's to not pass in a windstorm. So glad they uh, glad they took some notes from that game as well with the offensive game plan because I wasn't ready for another 40 times <laughs> in the wind we were experiencing yesterday. All right, with that, let's turn it over to next week's game to cover the Navy midshipmen. It's special, man. You can hear those fans, man, the students. And I really didn't want to leave that field. I mean, you know, to spend some time with those students. And, uh, man, this is a game that I'll never forget. Uh, but uh, extremely pleased with the way our guys play. Offense, defense, special teams, all three phases really played well. And, uh we're going to enjoy this one. We're going to enjoy it tonight, um, enjoy it tomorrow. And then uh, at some point tomorrow, we got to get back and get back to work and get ready for Navy. But uh. Notre Dame now takes their top 25 ranking coming in at number 20 in the AP polls. We'll, we'll see if they crack in the top 25 of the college football playoff committee. They take that six and three record to play Navy. I believe the game is in Baltimore. Pink Stadium. Yeah, where, where the Ravens play. Navy, the inverse record of Notre Dame's coming in at three and six. Kenya Matalolo seemingly on the hot seat. We'll see how patient the military academy is. Um, but this is a program that's really struggled since 2019. Um, you know, if you look at where this team is, what really comes down to it is the triple option offense is now just broken at this program. They rank 119th out of 130 teams in SP Plus's offensive efficiency rating. And so, you know, 2020, I forget, I don't think they won a game that year. Um, and 2021 was another disappointing game. So could be three years in a row without seeing Davey in a bowl game. And so the big question 
you know, Danny, I'll let you kick it off. Can Navy hang in this game? Is, is there a scenario where this game is close? Whenever Navy is good, it's usually a combination of two things. One, they have a fullback who just breaks your heart and just turns out those four yards per carry every single play. And, and that's a backbreaking kind of offense you have to face. But what Notre Dame has been successful with in the past is being able to key in on that fullback because the other key element is having a quarterback who can run the option, who can, who can make you respect the outside pitch man and, and the second, third option and, and the option run. And with Navy having lost their starting quarterback for this game, they just don't have the talent back there to, to really make Notre Dame have to defend four different options. So unless their, their backup is surprisingly a backup by mistake and can run the offense better than they've shown so far, I, I don't see how Navy's going to have the, the trigger man back there to, to carry this team against a, a strong Notre Dame defense. You're going to have, you're going to have eight, nine men in the box every game and, and Notre Dame's going to be able to match up to anyone on the outside. They got the speed to match and, and uh, the quarterback, I don't think is, I, I haven't looked into how this backup is, but losing your starters really, it's going to spell doom for Navy. Particularly in an offense like the option where so much of it is, is read and react. Um, I should correct what I said about their struggles here in the last couple of years. They were three and seven in the shortened 2020 COVID season, four and eight last year. And that was coming. They were 11 and two in 2019. I always forget that they finished 2019 ranked in the top 25. Um, you know, really were kind of a win away from possibly even being the group of five team to get a, a spot in, in one of the New Year's Six Bowls. So this is a program that was humming along incredibly through 2019 and has really fallen off now in the last two years. And, and with a quarterback injury, um, you know, tracking towards another um, below 500 season. The one thing that I will say about this Navy team is last year, the last couple of seasons when they lost, they were getting blown out. Here they've hung with teams. They, they played Cincy pretty tough and lost by 10. SMU lost by six. Air Force lost by three. So they have hung with teams. I think, as you alluded to here, injury at quarterback probably makes it more difficult. If they do pull off an upset, um, the recipe to win is going to be with their defense. Um, they're ranked 63rd in SP plus. So this is not, you know, some elite, um, defense, but they are in the top 40 in run defense. And so similar to what we said, um, in the Syracuse game, um, and the, or sorry, in the, in this Clemson game, the weak spot for this defense is their pass coverage. Um, they rank 128th in pass coverage grades. Um, across the country. Notre Dame's probably not the team to exploit that as well as some other programs. And so if you said, you know, Navy's strength is their run defense and their biggest weakness is their pass defense. That actually does match up well um, against Notre Dame. Now, that being said, though, I think Notre Dame's run offense is still way better than Navy's run defense. I think what we just did against Clemson and Syracuse, if, if you can replicate that at all, the physicality in this game um, just the recruiting ranking, right? Like the Navy program doesn't really have three, four, five-star recruits. They're outside the top 200 um, in the 24-7 talent composite. Notre Dame's 10. So I just think it's going to be a way, way overmatch, and there's a reason why Notre Dame's a heavy favorite in this one. Yeah, with with a, with an option defense or option offense, one thing you have to keep in mind is there's only going to be so many possessions. I think it was 2016 where – 
they had seven possessions on both sides of the ball that game. That's a that's a recipe. If you have an empty possession, and Notre Dame has shown in the past, they will have empty offensive possessions. This could become a 10-7 game, and, and then one fluke play can flip it. So, unfortunately, it's not that Notre Dame, you want to live in the moment, but you also have to recognize what they've been all year. It doesn't take a lot for Navy to make this a competitive game by finding a way to force nerding to punt a couple times and one flip plate. You only have the ball for three, four times a half, and it's it, it's going to be a grind still, even even if they're struggling on offense. Maybe uh, maybe finds a way to shorten these games and make them make them a little nerve wracking. Yeah, and you know the the one thing that makes me even more confident in this game. If you recall, early on in the Brian Kelly era, we lost the Navy a couple times. Um, I was actually there for the game that went through triple overtime in the Charlie Weiss era um, when we lost the Navy for the first time, I think in like 40-some years. And since then, Brian Kelly brought in an assistant whose only job was to teach option defense, uh, basically playing defense against the triple option. I don't even know if that person's on the staff anymore. I'm, I'm assuming they've, they've moved on. But that's, it's almost like the book is now in Notre Dame's locker room on how to defend that. And so, you know, Marcus Freeman was part of getting that lesson, if you will, um, you know, being passed down from Mike Elko and before then from Clark, or Clark Lee and before then Mike Elko and before then Bob Diaco. So I think that continuity of Notre Dame's, you know, defensive coaching staff, knowing how to defend against the triple option, um, is, is a big part of this secret uh, secret sauce here. So, Danny, Notre Dame's a heavy favorite in this one, 18 and a half points. What are you watching for in this game? Is, is there anything that you're honed in on to see, hey, is there a data point that helps you really feel better about the USC game? Like that's kind of what's left for going to be heavy favorites against Navy and Boston College. So is, is there anything you're watching in this game to kind of say, okay, that might make me feel better or worse going into into these last two games. It's tough because Navy is such a unique offense. There's there's only so much you can really you can really take away. I mean, no other offense is going to present the challenges that you face with Navy. So it's tough to see what you can see is how does how does Notre Dame respond mentally? The the Marshall game you could say almost was Ohio State defeating us twice because the team just didn't come out with that same sort of level of energy needed to to be an inferior opponent. And you have to hope that Marcus Freeman can get the team ready to go against another weaker opponent after such a huge, huge week. So it's how they mentally respond. And I think seeing that mental preparation and that, that kind of response is what you're looking for most is, is Notre Dame mentally fit to match the grime and the physicality and the just the headbanging that you're going to have in this game. So there's a lot of that. Um, you have to look at how they how they play Navy's defense. Navy's got a really, really strong havoc rate. It's going to be it's going to be a tough defense to uh, contain at times. Yeah, I, I agree on that havoc point. They're number two in the country with a 29% havoc rate. The corollary to that is they're 129th in explosiveness allowed. So they are a very boomer bust defense that's going to go and, you know, basically gamble 
to come up with big disruptive plays um, and, and hope they catch you a couple of times. And USC's defense is actually a little bit like that as well. USC actually leads the country in turnover margin. Uh, they've, they've forced 18 turnovers on the year and a, and a 16 um, net, net margin that's actually best in the country. And so if there's maybe one thing that I'm watching in this game, it's, it's do we limit the havoc the Navy's defense generates? Like, look, if our defense goes and stops the triple option, that's not going to tell me anything about how we're going to stop Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams' offense at USC. But if Navy's able to get a lot of havoc on us, and USC is another team that generates a lot of havoc from their defense, um, that might be a little telling. So that's probably the one thing I'm watching for in this game is, is Navy's defense able to come up with disruptive plays. Um, other than that, the other big thing is to get healthy. Um, Brandon Joseph did play the entire fourth quarter, um, banged up with what seems to be a relatively minor injury um, and, and largely didn't come back in because the score was so lopsided against Clemson. Both, I think it was both the Adam Alola brothers. I had a hard time seeing the jersey numbers and, and haven't seen an injury update yet from the football program. But both of those guys were in and out with injuries. So would love to see Notre Dame um, maybe, you know, pull away early in this one, get to the two deep on the depth chart and try, try to come out of this game healthy. With that, let, let's move into score predictions. So ESPN has Notre Dame winning this one 91% of the time. The Vegas line, as I mentioned, Notre Dame's an 18 and a half point favorite. SP Plus implies Notre Dame is a 26-point favorite. There's always that mishmash, though, in Navy games between SP Plus and Vegas. It makes it really hard to, I think, bet and try to read lines with Navy because of the tempo. You alluded to it when you played Navy. You might only get three or four possessions, a half, you know, six, seven, or eight for the entire game. You know, in this last game, um, even in a slower pace, grind, um, I actually meant to count this up beforehand, Notre Dame had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, um, eleven drives. You might get half of that against Navy. So that leads to lower scoring, fewer possessions. And so then the point spreads are tighter. So if SP plus implies 26, it kind of gets adjusted down. So 18 and a half point favorite for Notre Dame in this game. Um, Danny, what, what's your prediction in this one? Yeah, I think, I think it's, Obviously, take the under. So, I just think that the the way Notre Dame special teams is going, I think they're going to create a couple short fields that they're going to get some easy easy points. But I I think that there's going to be a little a little bit of a a slow start here after after it's just such a big win this weekend. So I think they're going to probably put up a couple touchdowns, settle for some field goals. I'm guessing probably something around 24 to 10. That's kind of what I'm thinking for Notre Dame over Navy. You've got Navy um, covering the spread, but, but Notre Dame still winning by two scores. Um, if, if you're into betting, Notre Dame is 5-4 and four against the spread this year. The five games where we've beaten the spread have been when Notre Dame is either, you know, barely favored or the underdog. So Ohio State, North Carolina, BYU, Syracuse, and now Clemson. We are 5-0 and oh in those games. We are 0 and 4 as a three point, as a three score favorite. So when Notre Dame is basically favored by more than 14 points, we've yet to cover the spread in losses to Marshall and Stanford and the close survival game against Cal as, as well as the comfortable one against UNLV, but still didn't cover that point spread. So if you're into betting, 
Notre Dame is a three-score favorite, has not been favorable this year. However, I'm, I'm actually going to be a little more aggressive, I think, than, than you, Danny. I think this is finally a game where Notre Dame breaks that trend. Um, I've got it something like uh, 28-7. Notre Dame wins by a full three touchdowns, covers that spread. But against the Navy team, it's, it's hard to go out and you know, score 40, 50 points, right? So if, if you're going to beat a big number like that, You've really got to shut down their defense. I think Notre Dame, at this point in the season now, rolling off three straight wins, back-to-back ranked wins. I think they're locked in. I think they're focused. And I think they break that 0-4 mark as a heavy, heavy favorite and, and come out and dominate this one cover to cover. You know, and I hug the coaches because usually we go straight and we call up and, and you know, we say our post-game announcements and we move on. But um, I went to the coaches' locker room and gave them hugs, man. It's an honor to work with those guys. Uh, they truly prepare their tails off, you know. And, and you know what? Just like your players, your coaching staff feels, you know, the ups and the downs. And they just work their tails off. And, you know, it's an honor to coach with those guys. Real excited to have our second ever guest on the Guyers Talk podcast, a relative, the brother, uh, older and I'm told better looking brother to Sam Asaf, who joined the show last year. So uh, Mick, Mick Asaf, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here and uh, really appreciate you having me on. So for those that don't know, Mick graduated in 2020, spring of 21? 2019 and a half, right before COVID. I finished my academic obligations. And was a walk-on running back for Notre Dame, as our listeners might remember last year. Sam, his younger brother, also a walk-on on the team right now, made the prediction that he would be the all-time leading rusher out of the ASAP family, but as of right now, Mick, you've um, you've still got the record, but more importantly, um, now the founder of Yoke, an NIL platform company for college football players. So, Mick, just to kick things off, you want to give us a little overview on what Yoke is and what you've been up to since graduation? Yeah, for sure. So, at Yoke, we really just focus on building fan engagement technology for student athletes, and in doing so, we we'll help them maximize their name, image, and likeness. We think that the future of NIL is going to be through fan engagement and through building community. And so we spend all of our time really building that software that makes it really easy for college athletes to build the community and to start monetizing. Um, and Yoke's something I've been doing since I was a student at Notre Dame. I started working on it. It's been some twists and turns, figuring out kind of what product market fit is. And then once you you know figure that out, uh, there's been a lot of lessons learned along the way. But we now work with a bunch of different schools and student athletes make more than $100,000 every single month using our platform, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. So how many employees, how many people are on your team now? And like, what's the revenue model from, from Yoke's perspective? Yeah, so we have 15 people now on our team. Uh, we raised some funding, which has allowed us to grow a little bit more quickly, um, especially on the product side. And our revenue model is currently, um, we started with a platform fee. So pretty traditional for a creator platform like a Patreon, where we make a percentage of the, the total revenue that the community, that the, you know, student athletes generate. But in the, you know, past few weeks, we've had a lot of inbound interest from universities to license our software to their student athletes to alleviate them of that fee. And so, now we're kind of looking at the ways in which we can 
partner with those universities to make the software available to all of their student athletes, not just their football student athletes, um, and kind of empower them to all start building their own communities and start providing content to their fans. So it's definitely evolved. I think that's part of the entrepreneurship journey is kind of understanding that where you start isn't necessarily where you're going to finish. And so it's been fun to kind of see that evolve. That, that certainly makes sense, especially for an industry like NIL that, you know, didn't really exist three, four years ago, right? So th- this is, as an industry evolving, let alone your company. So one of those platforms that some of our listeners might be familiar with is the Irish Players Club. I think that was the first community you guys rolled out. Um, can you just talk about what the Irish Players Club is, if you wanted to, you know, join it as a fan, how you can get involved, how that leads to benefits for the members, the fans, but also how that benefits the players? Yeah, so the Irish Players Club is a you know player-led fan club for all Notre Dame fans, and we started with um, an initial NFT project that allowed a certain number of members to join, and in doing so, they would get access to two tailgates. Which the first one was crazy; it had about I'd say fifty to seventy-five percent of the active NFL players who went to Notre Dame. So if you name a player who's played in the last five years, they're all kind of at that tailgate, got to meet all the fans. And so it was a hybrid of digital and in-person events. Um, and it was really awesome. We've paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, really close to like half a million bucks to Notre Dame football players through the Irish Players Club. And so now if people want to join, you go to irishplayersclub.com and subscribe. We actually have an iOS and Android app coming out in the next week to two weeks maybe three weeks uh we haven't really told people yet because if we get you know i don't want to tell people it's ready and then it's not but it will be out soon and it'll be a way for you to you know kind of bring the fan conversation uh into a place that benefits the players directly so we're really excited about that it was the first thing we ever did and kind of one of the first things we did in the kind of team-wide fan engagement sector it was kind of our our baby at yoke and kind of figured out how it worked. And it's kind of been the most crazy, most successful project we've worked on yet, which is pretty awesome. So, so far, it sounds like this is pretty much focused on team platforms. I guess two follow-up questions from that. Say in the case of Notre Dame, how many players are involved in this? Is it truly the whole roster, some of the roster? Is it a couple key guys? And, and do you see this evolving You know, more down this team path, or is there any place for you know yoke to focus on more individual player platforms yeah so i think like team-centric approach is really important notre dame is about 95 percent of the team involved um between 90 and 95 percent of the team is involved and i think kind of my thesis and something i've talked to a lot of different coaches about is just college sports is so team-centric everything about nil that isn't team-centric is kind of not true to the core of what college sports is all about. And so we're going to stay focused on like team centric stuff because we kind of believe that, um, you know, teams can go further when they work together. It's what our platform was built around. Um, and so we're going to stick to that. Got it. And, and how many schools are you with right now beyond just Notre Dame? Yeah, we're like 35 different schools right now. So very cool. Definitely expanding quickly. Yeah, a lot, lot of growth in a couple of years. So someone who's in this NIL industry, it's evolved a lot. I feel like a lot of fans still don't really appreciate the ins and outs. And, you know, there's headlines on every Texas A&M recruit got a million dollars and 
There's websites like On3 that says Mike, Mike Mayer's worth $870,000. How much are these players actually getting? Like, are those numbers real? Like, how's this evolving? Where's the money coming from? Just what's your take on where NIL is today and, and where it goes from here? Yeah, I think it kind of started where everyone thought that, like, brands would come in and just dominate the space. You'd have, you know, all these brands that want to spend all this money getting college athletes to advertise. And I think it's shifted more towards being very fan-driven opposed to brand-driven. Um and collectives are an example of you know, a fan-driven form of NIL, which has kind of taken center stage because it has – there's places where the collectives or you know NIL agencies have hired development officers from universities. So uh, in a lot of ways, kind of taking a core model that has existed in universities and fundraising and kind of turning that towards NIL – um, so that's not really what anyone expected. I think people thought like Coca-Cola mom and pop shops would say, I want Michael Mayer to post about this because we have a store in South Bend and it will bring attention, but college athletes aren't, you know, not a lot of college athletes are Tom Brady level influencers. They don't have millions of followers. And so the people who find the most value and who are really kind of generating the most income are the fans and the alumni and the boosters. And so that's kind of where NIL has steered more towards is that fan driven segment. And there's definitely a lot of numbers out there. It's really hard to predict because uh, you have like true NIL towards like brands aren't just overpaying for no reason, but there are fans who can say that, you know, 15 minutes, Michael Mayer's worth a million bucks. And like, that's your right as an individual. I don't think there's many companies with, you know, stockholders um, that are going to be very happy if you spend that type of money. But as, you know, an individual and as a fan, you have the right to spend your money however you want. And that's where you see the really big numbers coming up because there's fans who really value athletes on their, you know, favorite team. And that's where you kind of see those bigger numbers coming up. Do you see any regulation coming at some point to try to bifurcate fan versus booster? I think you've you've said the word fan a lot in this conversation. I think you maybe said the word booster once. That's a blurred line, right? So, like, do you, do yeah. you see anything coming in the way to try to regulate this a little bit so it's not quite as you know directly pay for play? Like, how do we get away from that? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely ways that you can try to cut it up but the truth is if you look at the NCA's definition of a booster and um like your average fan uh can get it's really hard to define a booster right it's like anyone do you need a certain amount of money or a certain amount of contributions because really anyone that like supports the school directly and is you know supports the team directly you know owning season tickets in theory can make you a booster um and so fans and boosters have a ton of overlap already. And then it's kind of the rate at which you're willing to contribute, you know, resources might make people identify you as a booster. So it's really hard to segment. I think I would say that it's almost impossible to stop, to allow fan engagement monetization, to allow a student athlete to launch a podcast or to start a t-shirt store and then stop, boosters or you know fans who have more resources from getting involved and saying i want to buy ten thousand t-shirts 
Well, who's to yep. tell him he doesn't want 10,000 T-shirts? That's, you know, that's your right as a fan to be able to buy that. You have more money and you can buy more T-shirts. So that's where it's kind of a slippery slope. I do think that there's going to – one thing that's kind of – some of these really big collectives are 501c3s. I'm very far from an expert on anything tax-related, but it seems like the IRS um, and, you know, some senators are interested in uh, – kind of diving deeper into that we're not we don't do anything in the nonprofit sector as it relates to nil but that has become really popular i could Hmm. see a regulation there because that's kind of an interesting approach on uh you know charitable giving as to collectives that then give money to athletes to promote a charity so i don't think it's all bad uh it's definitely a net positive but i'm not sure that the irs um you know some of the senators seem to think that that's not the way that it was intended to be used. So we'll, for sure, okay. that definitely seems like a lot of gray areas as, as this continues <laughs> to evolve. Yeah. Do, do you think like, is Mike Mayer getting, you know, $500,000 is Bryce Young getting $3 million? Like, are those kind of headline numbers real? Could they be higher? Don't like, or, or just hard? To yeah. Um, hard to know for some of those guys, for sure. I can say that, I the it's in the millions, you know, it's a mil it's it's a million plus for those top QBs, I would say for sure, the big markets. Uh like a, Stra- a Stroud, a Bryce. Uh, I think it's for sure those guys are, you know, over a million bucks. And then yeah, I think I mean I don't know how much Mike's getting, but that that would sound reasonable to me and not craziness at all. Um that sounds like the right range given him. I don't I haven't talk to him about it but he's definitely made you know he's got a, you know he's got real brand endorsement deals um and he's got you know some stuff going on so i think that that sounds about right that doesn't sound crazy to me so how does notre dame stack up against other programs in terms of being competitive put from a dollar perspective if you will or at least opportunity perspective you know there's stories out there that every texas a&m recruit gets a million bucks there's anecdotes out there that five-star quarterback QB Dante Moore who is at one point looking very heavily like he's going to commit to Notre Dame pivots towards Oregon and was quoted as saying NIL was a factor at least one of many factors are we a step behind are we in line is it just another area where you've got to compete like facilities and being a good program and having a good coaching staff like what are you hearing from from that angle of whether or not we're competitive and how we're stacking up yeah, I think we're we're gonna do we're gonna we're doing a good job. I don't think we're um, we're probably being a little bit more low, low key on purpose. So I think, but there's substance to Notre Dame's efforts, and I think it's competitive. Uh, I'm not sure it's it's designed to be a little bit more low key. I would think um, and a little bit less tactical. I, tactical is the word I would use that a lot of schools are becoming very uh, proficient at. So understanding that we really, you know, need this player to stay or we need this player to come here. Um, that's, you know, that could be seen as an inducement, but there's also, you know, there's a lot of gray area and everything in NIL. So I think Notre Dame's, you know, going by the book uh, and doing things the right way, at least as far as I can tell. Um, Irish Players Club's been awesome. You know, it's been like that, that base level, I think, doing something the whole team's involved in is really important to team culture. I think 
you know, there's schools out there that have a lot of five stars. That doesn't mean they're going to be good. Uh, you still have to go out and play and work as a team. Uh, and like culture is so important. I can't even emphasize how much I think culture is important. Like, so NIL in some ways could, if done improperly, can hurt your team as much as it helps you, especially in football. I think, it, you know, basketball might be kind of like, if you have the best team, you're probably going to win. But football is such a team sport. Uh, and culture matters so much. So, yeah, I think Notre Dame's, you know, we're, we're holding par for sure. Uh, but I think getting the fans more involved would be important, right? Notre Dame is such an incredible fan base alumni network. And I don't know if Notre Dame's like, we're, we're, we're getting better with Irish players club to make it more streamlined, but there's definitely ways in which, you know, the university um, can kind of push it now legally with NCA's new guidelines. They can push it out to all of their alumni and say, if you want to help with NIL in the same way you want to, you know, donate to this fund or help with development or new buildings, like NIL has to be a piece of that puzzle to be competitive. If you're talking three, five years down the road, it's going to be a, that, you know, it's going to fit into that, that puzzle. Got it. It's, it's really good perspective. To close out this interview, curious as someone who was a player in the Brian Kelly program, your brother's obviously now in the Marcus Freeman program, and you're still really close to a lot of the guys in, in the locker room. Um, we're recording this, by the way, before the Clemson game. So for listeners listening to this afterwards, we, we don't have that data point. But as of right now, five and three, certainly a shaky start to the season at best, um, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. What are your thoughts on the program? What are your thoughts on Marcus? Do you think he's the guy? You know, what are you hearing in the in the locker room from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's just um, – I think Coach Freeman's doing a really great job um, at, you know, sit, putting his culture in place. There's just a transition period. I think that's what you see right now is just things change, your routines change, um, like what you're used to changes, and that lack of continuity. But, you know, he's not building – he's not trying to just win this year. He's trying to win a national championship. And so he's going to put what he put – what he thinks – the team needs in place to win a national championship. And that will take some growing pains moving out of your old routines. Coach Kelly was really good at routines, really good at getting your team ready to play. And, but it's, you know, coach Freeman's job to put the processes in place that he thinks can help the team win a national championship. That's his goal. And so I think that they'll figure it out. I mean, I think fans are crazy. Like Notre Dame fans, God love them. Like crazy people, uh, like, Coach Reese isn't bad at calling plays. Um, like Sean McVay's trying to iron him. He definitely like, knows how to call plays. The offense, um, like, and you don't forget how to call plays in the offseason. I always try to tell people that when they're yelling. Like, he, he didn't, he knew how to call plays in 2020. He knew how to call plays in 2020. He didn't forget. Yeah, he did not work out in the offseason to forget how to call plays. I think he's a competent play caller. I think he's a good play caller. Uh, but you have an offense, like, not a ton of production returning at skill positions, uh, like wide receiver position. Obviously, we have Mike back, but they're still figuring it out. I think culture-wise, there's like that shift, which at kind of led to a slow start to the season, but they're picking it up. And, um, yeah, I think I think Coach Freeman will do a good job. They'll have to figure out, um, you know, it's his first time. Like, first time being a head coach is hard. First time doing anything is really hard, but – I mean, if you can recruit really, really well and have a good culture, then I think you'll win a lot of a lot of football games. I, I like that viewpoint, and I'm not sure if you've listened to our 
last few shows, I've, I've definitely been one of the critics of, of looking for more in, in the play calling, um, as, as we've dissected games. But I think it's a really good reminder, especially on returning production. Like I feel like it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. We don't have Avery Davis or Joe Wilkins, who we thought we'd have, let alone Kevin Austin, who let, left early, let alone Jack Cohn. So, I mean, pretty much every skill, let alone Kyron, right? So, I mean, at wide receiver, running back, and quarterback, that's a lot to replace. And it's it's a reminder that not every time when you're, you know, refilling that entire skill position roster can things just click right, right away in year one and definitely take some time. Definitely with a first coach takes take some growing pains, but yeah, um, and like look at seems- that recruiting class. Like if you look at uh, the the wide receiver, like go look at the twenty eighteen or sorry, yeah, in high school their years twenty nineteen, twenty eighteen, twenty twenty recruiting classes, even twenty twenty one. If you just look through those and think, I mean, how. Almost all those kids are gone or don't play wide receiver. Like it's crazy. Yeah, it's that, thin. It's thin. Like, it's pretty like much Braden Lindsay and that's Yale. it. Yeah, but like we had kids that transferred and like went to Yale. Like we just had kids that just are gone. And like, how many of these kids? I mean, usually we have like a Chase Claypool, an EQ, a Miles, like even Ben Skronik. Like we had someone that was like had experience, like was a matchup nightmare. No one's putting the safety on top of any of our wide receivers right now consistently, which just creates a ton of issues as a play caller because you can't stretch the defense vertically. And, um, you know, uh, you can see where we run the ball. We've been running the ball a lot. Uh, but the offensive line is really improving, which is, which is good. Because when you don't can't stretch, you better be able to block. And so luckily we've started to out blocking a little better. But this will be a challenge. They're a lot better up front than Syracuse. So. Yeah, we're, we're – a- Recording this before the Clemson game, it, it'll get posted after the, the preview on Clemson was effectively like, hey, we, we actually really liked the scheme in the Syracuse game. We thought that was the way to beat Syracuse was to go run the ball 56 times. Don't know if that's going to work against Brian Barisi and, and that front seven for, for the Clemson Tigers. You're, you're probably going to need more than you're, you're going to need more than one dimension. Um, yeah. But as you think about the development of this roster, not just in 2022, but next year and beyond um the hope is you know better developing that wide receiver room so you can stretch the field and and let reese open things up yeah and i think notre dame like if there's one thing they have to figure out it's we have to be we have to take advantage of the transfer portal like other schools are at the yep. wide receiver position like we we've had so many pieces flow out of notre dame and not many pieces flow in at the wide receiver position which is just that's a real that's a real challenge and that's beyond just the football program right that's the athletic director that's admissions that's the president that 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 touches a lot of people to get buy-in on doing things differently than how we've done it before that yeah i think that that is uh that should be what fans are really passionate about and uh that that's something that yeah i mean I don't, I don't, I get, the one thing about NAL is I don't see a scenario where a team will win a national championship in the next 10 years that isn't utilizing the transfer portal very, very effectively. Um, hmm. I just don't think, I think if there's one thing, it's like, it's just going to be, we are very early, but as systems get more robust and universities get more involved, 
you'll be able to go to school and everyone on the roster will make $50,000 just for being a part of that roster, being a part of that community. And so if you don't have it, like without a transfer portal, it's really, really hard. It's going to be really, really hard to compete. Very. Yeah. Hard. I mean, we're, we're seeing that already of the last coaches that have won national titles, you know, Stetson Bennett wound up re-winning the job, but everyone forgets that JT Daniels was brought in to be the starting quarterback in the transfer. Joe Burrow was brought in to save LSU. Um, you know, even Nick Saban's gone to the transfer portal um, in, in, in a guy in Jalen Hurts, right? Or I guess he went the other way to Oklahoma. Jameer, um, but they're starting running back. Yeah, Gibbs. yeah, Jameer Gibbs comes in, comes in from Georgia. Hannon Hooker, Tennessee. So, I mean, pretty much every top program is figuring out a way to, to do this. We've probably got some more administrative obstacles to overcome given the academic restrictions put in place on you know, student transfers. Um, and, you know, I think that's a big limiting factor right now that isn't getting enough coverage. That is, in my opinion, that that'll be the biggest challenge to Notre Dame winning a national championship. Hmm. Well, Mick, really appreciate this interview and, and taking the time to join us. Um, awesome insight. Congrats on what you're building with Yoke and, and excited to see the growth ahead of you guys. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on.